Well, hey, all you wiretappers out there, back here in the studio of Gangland Wire, I have a little-known story about a little-known Jewish gangster, Jewish-American gangster of the 1940s, 50s, 60s, almost. Well, I guess he died in 1957. Real instrumental in helping to get Las Vegas going. David Berman, born in 1903. You know, kind of interesting. He came from the Midwest. He's a good Midwest boy in Sioux City, Iowa, and Twin Cities, then out to Las Vegas. And he was really a casino gambling pioneer. He was a partner with Bugsy Siegel at the Flamingo early on. Uh, tell you a little bit about where David Berman came from. He was born in Odessa, Russia, in the Russian Empire back in the 1903, before the revolution in 1917. His father was a rabbinical student played the violin, kind of a more of a cultured sort of a guy. But when he was a young man, you know, they those programs over there in Russia caused a lot of Jewish people to leave Russia. Uh, they moved to, they relocated to Ashley, North Dakota. Now, can you imagine, I guess the, the lay of the land, the, the steps, the Russian steps, the uh, uh, North Dakota prairie might not be so different. I don't know if he was a farmer or not. I, I couldn't figure that out. But there was a uh, Baron Maurice de Hirsch, who was a Jewish guy, had a colonization association. And when people were leaving Russia and coming to the United States, this was a place that he had set up to relocate, relocate people. They say that his mother was horrified when she got off the train and saw it was the Wild West. It was cold. <laughs> they were used to Odessa, which is a decent-sized city. The Bermans didn't do too well, and they moved south, not very far south to Sioux City, Iowa, which is cold in the heck, too, if you guys from the upper Midwest know. But that's where he began his criminal career, like all these other newly arrived immigrants back in the 19, the teens and the early 20s, especially when Prohibition came along. There was opportunity. If you were smart uh, and you were bright, there's opportunity. And by the age of 13, they, again, just like these mob guys in his teen years, he ended up running a crew of other thugs like himself doing little extortions, you know, going to the businessman saying, you know, you won't get your windows broken out if you give me some money each week. Nobody will come in and, and shoplift in your store or just go in and disrupt your restaurant and tear things down and start fights in your restaurant. That's been going on a long time. He also was involved with a string of illegal distilleries as a teenager, and he had his own armed robbery crew. He was like a natural-born leader during his teen years. Supposedly, you know, this is allegedly here, some New York-based mobsters, Bugsy Siegel and Mayor Lansky, recruited him. They had heard about him. They recruited him to kidnap other wealthy criminals for ransom. Now, that's long been a, a staple of up-and-coming mobsters. You know, if you know, you know, Gotti killed that McBratney Irish mobster, Irish gangster, because he kidnapped Carlo Gambino's nephew, and, uh, and the guy died in the midst of the kidnapping. So this is a, you know, this whole kidnapping other wealthy criminals has been a deal for a long time. Berman and his crew then kidnapped a Brooklyn real estate baron and bootlegger named Abraham Charlin. They were kind of surprised, though, when Charlin's people notified the NYPD and they were waiting at the $20,000 ransom payment in Central Park. At a shootout, his partner, a guy named Marcus, was shot dead by the NYPD and Berman was arrested. He was offered a deal to testify against 
Lansky and Siegel, who had hired him, he quipped, you know, heck, the worst I can get is life. You know, you can't you can't do anything to me like a guy had told me when I was trying to get tough with him and tell him he needed to give me some information. He said, man, he said, I've been cuffed around. He said, all my life, I can do a tray standing on my head. Worst I'm looking at is a tray. Uh, David Berman was convicted of felonious assault for the kidnapping. He got 12 years in Sing Sing. He was paroled after seven and a half, and he got the blessings of Mo Sedway, who will go on to be a an important gambler and representative representative of the mob out in Las Vegas, and Mayor Lansky, who, as we know, really kind of started that movement out to Las Vegas by the mob, by the New York families. He moves to Minneapolis. He starts a major illegal gambling ring, which was in rivalry to some people that already had one, a, a Irish mob guy named Tommy Banks and a couple of Jewish gangsters named Yiddy Bloom and Kid Can. So that's uh, <laughs> that's Berman, I tell you what, he's a bold dude. And he became one of the more feared gangsters in the Twin Cities in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area by the time he gets done. He has a guy that works for him named Israel Alderman, who was a notoriously homicidal Jewish hitman. They called him Ice Pick Willie, I assume, because he liked to use an ice pick. He was nicknamed Davy the Jew, and he led his operation out of the Radisson Hotel in downtown, and then he moved over to the luxury hotel called the Dykeman. During this time, this is during the 20s, Al Capone has wanted to recruit and set up up in Minneapolis. He thinks Al Capone thinks he owns the entire Midwest, you know, in Kansas City. They didn't they didn't argue with Al Capone or ever argue with anybody from Chicago. We just got along with him. So David Berman is not that guy. And there's a couple of Italian-American brothers, I don't have the names, that were sent by Al Capone to start organizing the crime family, a, a Capone family, in the Twin Cities. David Berman ordered their murder. This ended up in a sit-down between Capone and Berman's protectors or his connections back east, a Genovese crime family out of New York City. Capone demanded that Berman be killed, be hit. New York mobsters spoke in his defense and they had a, you know, regular old fashioned sit down. In the end, Capone backed down, but he said, if he ever comes to Chicago and I find out about it, he's a dead man. By the 1940s, Berman is pretty well taken over all action in the Twin Cities area and Minneapolis, St. Paul area, all illegal gambling, anything else. You know, he, he has become the godfather of the Minneapolis area. You got political connections. He backed a mayor. So he had cover from the mayor, a guy named Klein, that Tommy Banks and Kid Khan ended up working for him. So he he was the man. And a, kind of an interesting thing, a story that his daughter always tells is that he would use his crew to intimidate and terrorize an anti-Semitic militia. Uh, it was They were Americans. They were called themselves the Silver Shirts. You've heard of the Brown Shirts. Well, these were the Silver Shirts just before World War II, or not just before, but before, during the 30s, there were several of these groups that the uh, the Nazis really were funding 
little militias of uh, anti-Semitic men who did not like Jews and marched around and, and tried to act like they were brown shirts out of Nazis uh, out of Germany. And, and they were financed by the Nazis in Germany. But he, he used his crew to intimidate them and really drove them out of Minneapolis. But unlike some other mob guys, now Lucky Luciano did help in the war effort, and, and there's a lot of them that did. I've told a story about a local mob guy that said, you know, hey, I'm signing up, and spent his whole four years in Germany and came home and made money on the trip ship coming back home with a little scam he had going. But anyhow, he, being a Jew, he read about and he kept up on what was going on. He learned about the Holocaust as it started going and, and the Nuremberg Laws, which made it Nuremberg Laws were laws that the Nazis passed to basically make it made it illegal to even be Jewish. And you could basically be arrested for being Jewish. And, and they started putting them in concentration camps. And he learned about that. And he tried to join the the United States military is we were getting ready to get in the war, but they wouldn't take him because he was a convicted felon. Felon, So he joined the Canadian Army. About that time, the attack on Pearl Harbor happened and, and we got into it big time and Canada got into it. They'd already gotten into it to help England out. He and a friend of his named Nathan Gittlewich from Minnesota fought in the European theater with the 18th Armored Car Regiment, the 12th Manitoba Dragons and the 2nd Canadian Corps. And and they started at Normandy and went all the way to Berlin. He did get severely wounded in enemy fire, thought he was dead. He ended up being unfit for active service, couldn't really finish out the war. Came back to the Twin Cities. At the right at the end of the war, there was a Jewish journalist named Arthur Casherman. He was kind of a he was, he was anti-corruption crusader and anti-racketeering crusader and that mayor that Berman had bought off man named Klein he had a he, he released an article with some facts that said Klein administration most corrupt regime in the history of the city that ain't good sometime in 1945 Cashman was ambushed while eating dinner with a friend and shot dead now they don't usually do that kill reporters I don't know if our friend David Berman had anything to do with that or not but it was a big deal at the time and Cashman's murder was never solved, but it did ensure victory for a lot of anti-mob, anti-racket politicians. They became, they got a new mayor and this, for some of you guys, you may know this name, Hubert Humphrey, the happy warrior will go on to run for president of the United States in the late sixties. Uh, he became the racket busting Minneapolis mayor and he used his people to destroy Berman's operation. He just kept pressure on them. You just keep pressure on them. Every time they open up, you shut them back down and you know, don't worry about niceties, any kind of, you know, constitutional rights or anything. You just go in and, and shove them around and bust up their gambling places and arrest them and at least hold them overnight and you every time you see them on the street we used to have this thing called arrest check for recent activities hold them for 48 hours if you wanted and then kick them back out humphrey left the other guys alone there was a tommy banks and kid con i think that i mentioned before irish gangsters and he left them alone but went after berman big time Berman ended up, he gave up, and he moved to Las Vegas out to the Strip. And by this time, Mayor Lansky is seeing the opportunity out there. He sent Bugsy Siegel out after the war. Uh, Dutch Goldberg, Mo Sedway came out. And if you remember your mob history, Bugsy Siegel 
has been putting more and more money into this casino, the Flamingo Casino, that he says is going to make, you know, jillions of dollars for the, the mob, which I'm sure it did in the end. But at the first, it didn't. And they didn't. They, they thought he was stealing money from them. And they ended up killing Bugsy Siegel. If you remember the famous scene where he's like laying dead, Virginia Hill, his woman is was sitting next to him on the couch, somebody with a, a World War II surplus 30 caliber carbine shot him through the uh, through the window and killed him. Seems like there's a lot of money missing from the Flamingo. Mo Sedway was kind of like under a little bit of a cloud because of this. Gus Greenbaum, David Berman, they, they, they were like the guys that really took over the casino after Bugsy Siegel. They walked in and said, we're in charge, is my understanding. So that is the backstory about one of the men, a little-known man named David Berman, that ended up developing the Las Vegas Strip and made really made it into what it is today. He and Mo Sedway, they were the first guys. During his time in Las Vegas, as it's getting built up, why there wasn't really a lot of, of investigation into who was running what casinos, as we know. They didn't do that until the 70s. So the mob, as long as the mob was building casinos and running the gambling and there wasn't any complaints about the gambling and everything where everybody was having fun, the locals in Las Vegas, they didn't really know much about the mob. They didn't care about the mob as long as the casino money was coming in and there was a lot of money and a lot of jobs and it was rocking and rolling. They started giving money to local charities. David and his wife, Gladys Berman, became like Las Vegas royalty out there and they they hosted thousands at the Riviera Hotel and and they they like donated money and and got involved with good works and all that kind of thing and he dies he has some kind of a cancer problem he has polyps in his colon and he ends up dying on the operating table it's always been like People are unsure of whether, you know, maybe he was killed or not. I don't know. A lot of mob guys, whenever they die of natural causes, people want to make it into like they were killed. Shortly after he died, his wife committed suicide. And other people would say it was a mob hit because she wouldn't hand over David Berman's control of the different casinos that he he was involved in. She was only 39. She was a little bit younger, much younger than him. One of the few places you'll find much information about David Berman, he really knew how to keep a low profile out there in Las Vegas, was a green felt jungle by Ovid DeMars. In an interesting postscript here, his daughter, Susan Berman, became a journalist and she was she was actually ended up getting paid a total of four and a half million dollars by some people in the mob and for her stake in different Las Vegas casinos and other properties. She wrote a book, a memoir about growing up in the Las Vegas with her father titled Easy Street. In a ironic twist, shall we say, she was murdered execution style with a nine millimeter handgun handgun inside of her rented home in Las Vegas. She lived in a really nice place in Benedict Canyon. You may have heard of, and this is in 2000. But guess who killed her? You remember Robert Durst, rich guy that killed some other wives and things? He's he he had gotten involved with her, and he's the one that killed her. And he was even convicted of special circumstances, which he's got life imprisonment without parole. Now he had a bunch of other stuff, which I'm not going to go into. But I just thought it was like a, a weird kind of 
turn of events that David Berman was this low-key, little-known, important mafia representative to Las Vegas and became Las Vegas royalty in many ways. Had this daughter who, you know, seemed to be living a regular life and had plenty of money and was a journalist, wrote a book. She ends up getting connected with a homicidal maniac real estate developer named Robert Durst, who kills her. Go figure. You know, sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. Right. That was a that was a really fun little story. I thought, guys, I wanted to throw that together for you. And I really appreciate y'all listening. And don't forget to like and subscribe. I never remember to say these kinds of things. And also, if you might give me a attaboy on, uh, if you listen on the podcast, give me an attaboy, some stars or reviews or whatever. I don't know. I just, you know, I don't mess with that stuff anymore. I just like doing this. So I'm just going to keep doing it. So thanks a lot for listening in. And don't forget, I like to ride motorcycles. So if you're out there on the streets with your car, look out for motorcycles. If you have a problem with PTSD, go to the VA website if you're a veteran and get that hotline number. If you just have a problem with PTSD and you're not a veteran, then there's help out there, help available. You just got to start look, start looking for it. Many times drugs and alcohol is part of that PTSD symptom. And our friend, if you look up his YouTube page, or just he has a hotline number for people who have problem with drugs or alcohol. So thanks a lot, guys.